When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Bad things begin to happen after a young couple in debt discovers money in the ceiling of their murdered tenant. Good People, starring James Franco and Kate Hudson, premieres on demand this Friday, the same day it hits theaters. In Obvious Child, Jenny Slate plays a woman with an unexpected surprise just in time for Valentine's Day. Co-starring Gabby Hoffman, this heartwarming romantic comedy is available on demand starting September 30th. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I am Matt Singer. And this week on the show, Allison and I debate whether we'd really take all the animals two by two or just stick with the cute and delicious ones as we discuss Darren Aronofsky's Noah. Later in the show, we'll bring you Q Shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And inspired by Noah, we were, and this is true, going to do a Russell Crowe-centric podcast. But then we found out that while plenty of Russell Crowe movies are available to rent, there are basically none, almost none, available on streaming sites at the moment. Netflix only has Gladiator. And a 1992 Australian movie, movie called The Efficiency Expert that neither of us had heard of. But that is, according to Wikipedia, a favorite of Rupert Murdoch's. <laughs> uh, so tempting as that was, instead we're turning to biblical movies, as Noah is obviously one of those. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? Uh, I just want to say, I wish you had told me we weren't doing the Russell Crowe podcast before I had listened to the entire discography of 30-odd <laughs> foot of grunt. And I think there's a documentary about them as well. You're damn right there is. Which is your favorite, Allison? Gaslight or Bastard Life or Charity? <laughs> I prefer Bastard Life or, or Charity. I would like to think you just made up those album titles. Oh, no. They're Songs? very real. No, they're albums. These yeah. are albums. I'm looking at allmusic.com because God knows I, I did not know the names of the 30-odd foot of grunt <laughs> I was I was about albums. to be really impressed. They also have another album called <laughs> Other Ways of Speaking, and the cover is just Russell Crowe looking very intensely. I was prepared to talk about when he used to tweet all of his uh, exercise routines. That was a good time. <laughs> that was a good time. A glorious time. Sadly, we'll have to turn our attention elsewhere, though, due to lack of streaming Russell Crowe movies. But we'll talk more about that later. Let's get to opening break. A couple of uh, movies I'm very excited to check out, some stuff I've missed in the last couple months. I know you've seen one of these movies. I'll have to get your, your feedback on that, and I'll have to see if you've seen these other two. The first uh, recommendation is going to be available on VOD starting on September 30th. It is the new film from John Favreau, and it's called Chef. And after several major big-budget projects like Iron Man and Cowboys vs. Aliens, which I know is Allison's favorite movie of, <laughs> was that, 2012, 11? 
God, you loved that ago. movie. You could not get enough of it. You st- I thought the tattoo, where you got like the wrist thing that Daniel Craig wears this tattooed like, on your wrist. like podcast co-host abuse. I thought that was excessive. But you know, I have to admit, it does kind of look cool. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. But anyway, after some of those projects, those bigger projects, and before several more big projects, like the live-action version of The Jungle Book, which I think is Favreau's next movie, uh, Favreau made this returned to his smaller-scale roots with this semi-autobiographical film about a chef, played by Favreau, who feels like he is being stifled working in a big, famous restaurant in Los Angeles and who eventually sets out to rediscover himself and his own cuisine by starting, is it a gourmet food truck? It is. It's gourmet Cuban sandwiches. And he tours it around the country. Uh, He had to free himself from the shackles of high-end, soulless corporate for-hire work and return to his passion making stuff he feels really strongly about. <laughs> Metaphor alert. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphor alert. <laughs> Whoa, I'm feeling good, man. Let me say this. This is madness, huh? <laughs> this carne asada, check it out. Wow. Chef Big Dog up all night cooking. Shut up and taste this, some amuse douche. Come here, guy. Look at that. You like it? Yeah. yeah. We're gonna cook like this being reviewed by the most important critic in the city. Now suddenly you're going to be an artist. Well, be an artist on your own time. It's my restaurant. The kitchen is my domain. That was our deal. The deal has now changed. Either you stay or you go. Do you threaten to fire me now? No, I'm telling you what I'm prepared to do if you don't cook my menu. I haven't seen Chef yet, but I've heard nothing but good things about it. Allison, I'm going to ask you now. Did you enjoy it? I did. It's, it's a very pleasant film. Right. That's basically what I've heard. It's not yeah. a masterpiece. Um, most of the reactions are like that, that it's a pleasant, feel-good movie yeah. with some great-looking f- oh, food photography. Incredible. Like, there is... I mean, he makes some really amazing things in it, but the scene that I keep thinking of is one where he is making a grilled cheese sandwich for his kid, and it's just shot, like, the crunch when he cuts it in half and puts it, like, oozing on the plate is amazing. All right. So I guess what you're saying is that this is one to watch, but not on an empty stomach unless you plan on eating all the junk food in your house. Basically, yes. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Unless you can get someone to come over and make you artisanal Cuban sandwiches (laughs) while you're watching. So either way, that's called Chef, and it's available to rent on September 30th. Our next recommendation is the new film from one of our favorite indie directors, uh, Greg Araki, whose recent movie, Kaboom, we actually reviewed on the podcast. You can go back and find that on filmspottingsvu.com. That was on episode number 47. His latest film is called White Bird in a Blizzard, and it's available now on VOD. This premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival and stars Shailene Woodley, Christopher Molino, Gabourey Sidibe, Thomas Jane, and Ava Green, who is another one of your favorites. I do like Ava If Green. she had been in Cowboys and Aliens, forget it. That would have been like on your sight yeah, and sound the, all the time. Now the question valid. is, yes. would she have been on the Cowboy side or the Alien side? That's a great question. Right? I think there would have been two, one on each side, and it would have been like a metaphor <laughs> and they could have fought. for the battle for the inner Ava Green. I like that. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I would have watched that. I, I would have watched that. You should pitch a that. remake. That's it's automatic. About time to reboot this movie, I think. <laughs> so that, that movie is automatically like 30% better, just that description. <laughs> uh, here's the plot description for White Bird in a Blizzard A teen is relishing her newfound sexuality when her glamorous but disturbed mother vanishes. Though thrilled to be free, she is haunted by the strange facts of the case. I've heard good things about this one as well. Got a good review from The Dissolve, where I work. Noel Murray gave it a positive review out of Sundance. 
and particularly praised Woodley. Have you seen this one, Allison? I have not. I'm actually seeing it next week. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So that's White Bird in a Blizzard. If you are not seeing it next week, like Allison, you can watch it right now on VOD. And finally, available on October 2nd, another director we like. This is the new film from Nacho Vigalondo, who made Time Crimes. Uh, this is Open Windows, which stars Elijah Wood and Sasha Gray from The Girlfriend Experience. And... No other films that I'm familiar with at all, (laughs) in no way whatsoever. Uh, The description from the Movies On Demand website says that Jill, uh, that's Sasha Gray's character, a famed actress, refuses to meet with Nick, Elijah Wood, a fan who won a date with her in a contest, but Nick finds a way to stalk his favorite sex symbol from his laptop, and from there, I believe it's a thriller... Kind of sounds like a modern-day De Palma movie to me, because there's a lot of voyeurism in it, and... I know I, we both enjoy the Nacho Vigalondo experience, so I'm curious to see that one as well. Have you seen this I one? I have not. I'm really, I, there's something interesting, at least in the clip that I saw that they released online, you see him getting access to her phone, like her phone camera. Mm-hmm. And there does seem to be something very contemporary about yes. that idea of being Given hacking someone's phone. Scandal, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm intrigued. Yes. Prescient Nacho Vigalondo uh, thriller. Sounds good to me. That's Open Windows, and that is available starting on October 2nd. Did Doth speak to Matt and Allison and say, Thou shalt do a podcast about biblical movies, but first thou shalt discuss in general terms what thou thinks of these types of movies. And Allison, thou shalt go first. Thank you. I, I don't think I can sustain your biblical language, though. Yeah, I should There's... add some, in post-production, I'll add some reverb to Thank make you. me sound yeah. really even more godlike than I already sound. Yeah, like you're thundering down from the mountain, yes. basically. I feel like the the main point I would have to make about biblical movies is just that it, for a long time, when you look at older ones like Ben-Hur, like the Ten Commandments, like many of the kind of old musty classics, yes. it seems like it... Uh, they were kind of looked at as just another type of giant costume drama, mm-hmm. right? Like they were just uh, lavish and very serious and uh, just an expensive movie that yes. you could make that kind of you know spoke to, this is a big show. And I feel like now, if you make a movie that is biblical in nature, you have to deal with the fact that uh, you know that there's a giant kind of faith-based contingent of of like moviegoers who i think have you know are very sensitive about uh depictions and i mean this speaks to this happened with noah as well where there was a lot of kind of debate about whether it was you know like a a movie that was true to sure. the you know like various people's ideas of of of, of how whether it was accurate to the text it's like making a yeah. comic book movie there are those hardcore fans who demand to see a faithful adaptation and you have to worry about that exactly well and you know now i feel like there's obviously also a huge market for that type of movie right um you know they're not i don't know if you count this as technically a 
uh, a biblical movie, though it is based on what's supposed to happen in, in the book of Revelations, I guess. Uh, but like Left Behind, which is coming out this week, yes. right, is a reboot. Nicholas Cage. Yes, Nicholas Cage. Oh my Cage. God, where did everyone go? Exactly. Is an ex- more expensive reboot of a series of, you know, uh, Christian novels that were right. previously adapted with Kirk Cameron. Right, right. Uh, and then you have Ridley Scott's Exodus, which yes. is an attempt I was going to say, to be... both, both of the movies you mentioned at the top there, Ten Commandments and and uh, Ben Hur, both yes. being remade, so I think that shows you that there is a there is. A, I think. Well, I I'm curious as to how Exodus is going to do. Yes. Because it is. It looks like a throwback to that older type of movie. Yes. And I I wonder if 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 it goes well, then I'm sure we'll see a lot more of those again. But, yes, it'll be interesting to see. Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. know, but meanwhile, you have something like the Bible, the miniseries, right? That um, the recent one you mean produced, from yes, History by, Channel? Was uh, it? I don't. I think it was History Channel who produced it. Produced by Touched by an Angel star Roma Downey and her husband Survivors Mark Burnett. Right. And it became this hugely watched, like one of the mo- like the most watched things on cable. I think I believe it was last year. They recut it into a movie version right. that they released in theaters called Son of God. You know, and I, I mean, there's that was like a huge moneymaker. Yes. So there is like a, a kind of giant audience for, I don't know, a, a type of, I feel like at this point, a type of uh, movie that might not speak to to people who weren't kind of innately interested in it as maybe faith-based material. Right. Yeah. I mean, in terms of my picks, which we're going to get to in a minute. I kind of like the ones that I like tend to lean towards the one you were you were describing those old Technicolor epics and what I like about them isn't even often as much the religious themes as it is sort of the pomp and circumstance of old Hollywood. I love the lavish sets and the matte paintings and the costumes and the silly accents and the bloviating and all that sort of like yeah. I get a big kick out of that. I love seeing that and I kind of miss that kind of period in Hollywood where the big budgets went to kind of ambitious adult-oriented movies, you know, good or bad, at least they were not just for, like, you know, 12-year-olds. Right, and I think when you look at something like Exodus now, it does look a little like it's it's an oddity, you know, because those, those types of movies are not being made as often right. or not being made for adults as often. And not by, by, ho- like by mainstream Hollywood, as you said. They seem to be now more of, like, a indie kind of a thing, but they make money, so I think Anything that makes money is going to show up in Hollywood. So that's why it'll be interesting to see how that Exodus movie does, how that Ben-Hur remake, which I think is with uh, by Timur Bekmambatov, I think is directing that, who made Nightwatch. That'll probably be a little different than the original, I'm expecting. I would imagine, yes. Maybe some more vampires in that version than they were. You could always use some. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to our picks. You want to go first? Um, Sure. I'll go first. So I, for both of my picks, I, I went. I did not go with the type of movie that uh, you've chosen for these. I wanted to see movies that... Uh, kind of, I don't know, pushed off of that idea a bit. And uh, they both happen to be about uh, about Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. The first is Jesus Christ Superstar, which is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, and other platforms, directed by Norman Jewison, who uh, directed In the Heat of the Night, Fiddler on the Roof, and Moonstruck, among other things, and based on the rock opera, by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. I had never seen this movie until this week when I saw it for the podcast. Uh, And I had always thought it was incredibly odd that someone would choose to make a rock opera about, you know, the final days of Jesus. But this movie has a lot of charm to it. It's it's just in the very way it, it kind of commits to 
to being a rock opera about the crucifixion. Uh, it stars Ted Neely and Carl Anderson as Jesus and Judas and kind of sets up their their relationship to be the the major drama over the course of of the movie one of the things it also does that i think frees it up from a lot of uh, from from a major burden is that it starts off and kind of frames the story as a performance by having the actors drive up in a bus together as if they were like a theater company and they arrive kind of out in the desert and they all get out and then they put on their costumes and begin this so it doesn't have to try and create a whole consistent world of anachronistic biblical all singing you know uh and uh olden times and uh you know it's an extremely 70s perform extremely 70s piece of work a lot of beards and long hair and bare chests um uh, but uh, you know some of the, some of the songs are very good and i think the the relationship between jesus and judas is kind of poignant judas is set up to be someone who sees jesus as having bought into his own hype basically as someone who used to see himself as a as a man and now sees himself as the son of god and he is disturbed by what he sees as as jesus kind of leading leading people uh, away from their original message. And so, uh, you know, as the kind of the events unfold and are, you know, kind of familiar, it, it does bring an interesting new spin to, a new spin to their relationship and to what happens. My mind is clearer now. At last, all too well, I can see where we all soon will be if you strip away the myth from the man you will see where we all soon will be Jesus you've started to believe the things they say of you you really do believe this talk of God is true and all the good you've done will soon get swept away you've begun to matter more than the things you say it's there aren't many uh, biblical 70s rock, 70s rock operas out there and this one I have to say it kind of lives up to to uh, everything I'd heard, and uh, I was I was kind of impressed. It's it's a little ragged, but in a way that's that's very endearing. So that is Jesus Christ Superstar, and it is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, and other platforms. All right, that sounds like a fun pick. I've never seen that movie, but I am familiar with another Andrew Lloyd Webber biblical musical could have done a whole podcast just on that i guess yeah who wouldn't want to listen to that i i would have enjoyed it because uh, i was in in high school i was in that other weber musical joseph and the amazing technicolor Dreamcoat. So I, who were you i played reuben the brother who sings this song after the brothers like they're pretending that they that uh, joseph is dead and they have the coat and they he sings this like western there's one more angel in heaven <laughs> there's one more star in the sky and i don't remember any of the other words but i sang that song in high school and sounds I, good i i i 
you know, it's the first time in history anyone has ever been nominated for a Tony for a high school <laughs> play. It was a great honor for me. I didn't win. I think I lost to Nathan Lane, but uh, it was a, it was an honor to be nominated nonetheless. So uh, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to watch Jesus Christ Superstar sometime. My first pick is is definitely in that old school mold that I was talking about, and it's something I decided to watch for the first time for this podcast. Um, it is streaming on Netflix, so that certainly affected the decision. But the other reason I was curious about it is because this is actually the first movie that was ever released in CinemaScope, the widescreen format. So I was curious to see what the very first CinemaScope movie looked like. And it is The Robe from 1953, directed by Henry Coster. And it looks good. And one of the other things that I liked about this movie is that it, it doesn't really focus so much on... Jesus, although it is set around his life and around the crucifixion, but about the people that his life touched and his beliefs touched. You know, Jesus is not really a character. You see him in the background or he's obscured by crowds or, you know, we see him carrying the cross, but really the cross is obscuring his face. And instead, the movie is about how his death and beliefs touch the life of particularly this one Roman soldier played by Richard Burton, who is in charge of the group of Roman soldiers who crucifies Jesus. So he's partly responsible, and then after Jesus' death, Jesus' robe falls into the hands of Richard Burton's slave, who's played by Victor Mature. But And then after Richard Burton's character touches the robe, he goes mad. He's haunted by nightmares, and uh, he thinks he's been cursed by the robe, but actually he's he's haunted by the guilt that he feels about about his actions. You crucified him! My master, when you freed me, I'll never serve you again, you Roman pig. Masters of the world, you call yourselves thieves, murderers, jungle animals. A curse on you. A curse on your empire. There are certain things that. that I wasn't crazy about regarding the robe. I've never been a huge Richard Burton fan in general. There are things about his performance I, w- I didn't care for here. Anytime he's going crazy, whenever he's he's being driven mad by the robe, I, uh, he, he kind of goes way over the top in a way that I feel like is basically just pure camp. Um, the guy who plays Caligula, Jay Robinson, who is the primary antagonist of the movie, he becomes the emperor of Rome. I didn't think it was a great performance from him either, but there was stuff that I really liked about this movie. I liked the fact that this movie about the early days of Christianity pauses for this big, very well shot and choreographed sword fight between Burton and another Roman centurion. Not really for any reason other than, yeah, these were big historical epics. They were entertainment. Yes, there's about faith, but it was also about crowd-pleasing, and so they put in this big sword fight in the middle of the movie and it's a really good sword fight for the for the 1950s i enjoyed that it's a great looking movie in general it is the first cinemascope movie it, it's not the most visually dynamic cinemascope movie i've ever seen they don't move the camera a whole bunch but you really get a sense of the tableaus that they, that they're sort of creating on screen ancient rome ancient palestine these beautiful sets the beautiful uh backgrounds the matte paintings everything about that really fantastic and I liked sort of the depiction of early Christianity, early, you know, the life of Jesus, not of him being this, you know, figure that does these magical things so much as he is this this person whose, whose beliefs inspire people. And that's ultimately what I kind of want out of a religious movie, regardless of what religion it's about. 
you know, I want to be uplifted and inspired and to feel good after the movie. And I also want to see sword fights. Not necessarily in that order, but that's sort of what I'm looking for. So the robe really appealed to my particular taste predilections, I, I would say. So that's the robe, and it's streaming now on Netflix. All right, my second pick is really the opposite of that movie uh, in in terms of in the realm of the biblical movie. It is not entertaining. I would, I don't think anyone would describe it that way. Uh, it's not a good time, but it was incredibly successful, and I don't think you can talk about the modern biblical movie without talking about The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's 2004 epic about the last 12 years or 12 hours in the life of Jesus, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Um, You know, we've mentioned that some of these, these older films are, they're big entertainments. They are kind of historical epics and like big costume dramas uh, as much as they are biblical stories. Um, this is not that. It, this does not does not set up in any way to kind of... Uh, it assumes that you're very familiar already with everything that's about to happen. Uh, it does not, you know, it assumes that you already know all of the players when it starts off uh, in the garden. Yeah, and Gibson really approaches his material... Like Chris Columbus uh, directing a, a Harry Potter movie. You know, he's like, this is for fans. I'm going to be very faithful to my source material, even if in this case he draws from the New Testament and other sources. And you could always make objections about uh, historical fidelity. But certainly he approached this in a way that is faithful, uh, in a way that makes its success kind of astounding. It is a movie that is mostly in Aramaic and Latin. It is actually one of the most successful uh, foreign language film because it is it is shot in Aramaic and Latin. Um, it has no particular big stars. Jim Caviezel, who plays Jesus, is not like a huge name. The biggest star is Monica Bellucci, who is Mary Magdalene. Uh, but it is entirely based on uh, not really showing Jesus's teachings, but on showing his suffering. And it really, really leans into that in a way that it's incredibly disturbing, but I, I mean, obviously also very compelling. Uh, you know, it's uh, people have called this torture porn, and I don't know that I would go that far, but it is really gruesome. It is, uh, it's, it's, it's scenes of someone getting beaten severely and then getting whipped and scourged and then getting crucified in all of the detail that that entails. Hi. Mel Gibson is such a problematic person in his his personal life, uh, but there is something that he's hit on here in making a religious film that really doesn't bother with a lot of the actual religious teachings and focuses entirely on this pivotal moment in which uh, someone like suffers and you know, sacrifices himself and dies. And it makes that incredibly physical. And uh, I think that Gibson clearly understood that people didn't want, don't necessarily want a smoothing over of this and a turning it into fable. And that 
people were very interested in seeing every bit of blood being spilled on the pavement and being mopped up uh and you know i have to give him credit for for believing that that's something that people would want to see and it clearly was um and i feel like uh, i don't know that you can really kind of talk about religious movies uh and christian movies in the present day without really taking into consideration the passion of the christ so uh, that's a, a kind of a, an interesting, a weighty recommendation, I guess. But The Passion of the Christ is currently streaming on Netflix. Feel good film of the year. <laughs> of every year. Uh, my last pick, I'm going, I'm going back to the old school. That's the, those are the biblical movies I, I enjoy. To 1956, to a movie that is available for purchase on Amazon and iTunes. Still the gold standard, a standard surely shaped like a golden calf of handsome, over-the-top, beautiful, moderately bloated biblical epics. It runs a brisk 220 minutes, and it is the Ten Commandments directed by Cecil B. DeMille, which tells the story of Moses, played, of course, by Charlton Heston, and his struggles against the Pharaoh, played, of course, by Yul Brenner, and uh, the eventual leading of the Jews out of Egypt through the parted Red Sea. The Ten Commandments was the most expensive movie of all time when it was made in 1956, and it was one of the biggest hits of all time when it came out. It is old-school Hollywood bigness at its biggest, or certainly amongst the biggest. Uh, I rewatched the movie a few months ago for what might have been the first time that I'd ever watched it, not on broadcast television with commercial interruptions. And that was interesting because... Looking at the entire thing in widescreen, which you don't always see on television, a lot of times you know you get pan and scan, which is definitely not the way to see it. I I liked it quite a bit. Uh, it is an old-fashioned movie, but again, I feel like with these sorts of biblical epics, that is part of the charm. You know, this is a throwback. It is not a movie to be watched on an iPad while you're checking your email on your phone. It is a three and a half hour spectacle on the biggest scale with a huge cast and. You know, the the slight or excessive datedness, you know, it, it fits in a way. This is a thousands of years old story. And to have a version of it that feels a bit musty, it seems right to me in some way. You know, it has the it has a little a, a tinge of history to it. You know, this, this kind of story needs a bit of of the weight of age to it. And 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 this one has it. Let my people go. The slaves are mine lives are mine all that they own is mine I do not know your God nor will I let Israel go who are you to make their lives bitter in hard bondage man shall be ruled by law not by the will of other men who is this God that I should let your people go Aaron Pass down my staff before Pharaoh, that he may see the power of God. In this you shall know that the Lord is God. I think that's going to be one of the interesting things to watch about the remake, which we already mentioned, Ridley Scott's Exodus Gods and Kings, which is coming out this fall. That's going to have Christian Bale as Moses and Joel Edgerton as the Pharaoh. I'm already looking forward to the scene where, uh, you know, Pharaoh's like, I am the Lord of Egypt. And Moses responds, oh, good for you. 
<laughs> so that's going to be a great scene. But it's going to I think it's going to be really interesting to compare the movies. That's something I really like to do. I love to see how different filmmakers from different eras take identical material and do something completely different or maybe not, maybe totally similar in some cases. I think that will be very interesting to do. So I think this is a perfect time if you've never seen The Ten Commandments to check it out. It's not like you're going to spoil the movie. You're not going to spoil Ridley Scott's Exodus. You know how it ends. If it, if it, if you don't know how it ends, that means he changed the biblical story, which could be kind of awesome. You know, you know, the, the, the Red Sea never splits and, you and know, they just, they, what, just Moses, jump in and Moses, swim away. Moses follows his dreams and becomes like <laughs> a rock singer. You know, I, that could be interesting. Yeah. Could be very interesting. But if, if he stays closely to the original story, you're not going to spoil anything by watching the Ten Commandments. You'll just get be able to see and compare how different filmmakers approach the material, which I think is something really fun to do. So that's the Ten Commandments. It's available for purchase on Amazon and iTunes. When I heard talk of miracles, I dismissed them. But then I saw the birds with my own eyes, and I had to come. There isn't anything for you here. No. <laughs> this all belongs to me. This land... This forest, that stronghold of yours. Did you really think you could protect yourself from me in that? It's not protection from you. Then what is it? An ark. To hold the innocent when the creator sends his deluge to wipe out the wicked from this world. Return to your cities of Cain. No, we have all been judged. I have men at my back. And you stand alone and defy me. I'm not alone. And that brings us to our listeners' choice section, in which we review the film that you chose. In our last episode, we gave you a choice of the Bell and Sebastian film God Help the Girl, the Polish drama Ida, and Darren Aronofsky's Noah. It was a close race between those last two, but when we called it, Noah was the winner. Uh, Noah is Darren Aronofsky's follow-up to Black Swan and is a very different sort of movie, but he did write it with Ari Handel, who uh, worked with him on that film, as well as The Fountain and The Wrestler. The story of Noah is one that Aronofsky has long been interested in telling, going back to like seventh grade, Um, though the section of Genesis devoted to Noah is only four chapters long, which demands a lot of filling out, which he certainly did here. Um, Aronofsky's vision is somewhere between Genesis and Lord of the Rings. It's set in a twilight early world in which Noah, played by Russell Crowe, lives with his wife, uh, played by Jennifer Connelly, and their sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, I think Logan Lerman is the main standout there. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as an adopted girl named Ela, played by Emma Watson, in the outskirts of a civilization that's apparently spread and grown extensively since creation. Uh, but Noah and his family are kind of nomadic vegetarian environmentalists who've separated themselves from the whole wasteful, sinful, urban thing the rest of humanity has going on <laughs> uh, under the leadership of Tubal Cain, played by Ray Winstone, the evil king. Um, but this world, there are animals in it that obviously never made it to the Ark because we don't have them, like this kind of uh, spiny dog thing we see towards the beginning. Um, as well as fallen angels called the Watchers, who are basically rock monsters, voiced by rock monstery, the rock monstery likes of Frank Langella and Nick Nolte. Um, then Noah gets a vision that the world is going to be destroyed by a flood, and with the help of the Watchers, begins constructing an ark in which all of the animals, two by two, will be carried to safety. 
but Noah isn't sure that humanity deserves the same fate to survive along with them after he sees the terrible things that the rest of them have been doing. So Matt, there is no faulting this film for ambition. It has uh, incredible scope. Um, And I think it's got certainly some craziness to it. But the question is, is it craziness in an impressive sense or craziness in a kind of terrible sense? Uh, I thought it was crazy good for the most part. I enjoyed it. I think it's a, it is certainly an ambitious film, and I think some of the ambitious things about it are the best things about it, that it is not the same old Bible story of Noah, that it does add these interesting elements, these things that feel very contemporary, that feel like they're commenting on the modern world. Like you said, this industrial society that has ruined the earth and that... Um, mankind has bespoiled nature and that god is preparing to or maybe not god they never say the word god in the movie the, the creator, creator the creator is going to wipe this civilization off the earth and start over perhaps without humanity at all perhaps a a world of animals with no humans I thought all that stuff is very interesting and i thought the characterization of noah himself was interesting too the fact that he is this He's not this goody-goody character that he is kind of like an extreme environmentalist, that he would like kill humans to save animals and and that he really feels no compunction at times being... I mean, he it, it, there were times where he's just straight up slaughtering guys with swords, with knives and stuff like that. So I enjoyed all of that. The, the stuff that I didn't think worked all that well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the ambitious stuff about it, um, was sort of the... the I like the subplots that are in there, um, but I didn't always feel like they got enough screen time. Uh, I didn't feel like the characters really were drawn out enough. I felt like Noah was really the only guy on screen that got enough time to be fully fleshed out. His wife, his sons, they just seemed mostly like window dressing or they were conveniences that were there to sort of affect Noah that I didn't really feel their developments or their characters that they were just there to say things to affect Noah. And I felt the movie as a whole would have been stronger if their plots, their subplots, their characters felt more fleshed out. Yeah. I feel like one of the the difficult things of this, and I, I feel like I mostly like this movie is that, Noah and his family and everything they're, they're worried about. They're so kind of alien, you mm-hmm. know, they're so not like normal, like current day stakes, mm-hmm. human stakes that it can be kind of difficult to even to understand them. I, I, I feel like Aronofsky is trying very hard to fill out. I mean, there's a scene towards the end. That is a scene that's in the Bible where Noah gets drunk and his sons see him, you know, naked and cover him, cover his shame. And it's one of those anecdotes that I feel like in the Bible, you like look at it and kind of try and understand what the message of it is. Like who is, who is, you know, who is being shamed here or what, what part of this is supposed to be sin or what part of this is. And I feel like some, there's a lot of that in the movie of kind of Darren Aronofsky drawing out, attempting to draw out more present day, uh, resonances from from actions that I still feel like don't necessarily make sense, you right, know. Right. And and I think that 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 is what makes it difficult to kind of relate to a lot of the characters, other than Noah, who is who is given this kind of extremely difficult, but uh, maybe a little more relatable choice, which is does humanity deserve to survive right. when you're so invested in 
the rest of creation, as he calls it. Yeah, I see what you're saying. When you are sort of imprinting this modern framework or these modern values on this ancient story, then when you try to take some of the elements that are very old-fashioned and try to keep them in there, yeah, they just don't necessarily fit. And there's definitely some subplots in there that I think don't really work and, yeah. or that just or that just feel extemporaneous or they just don't mesh all that well with the central story of Noah and I you know and I really kept waiting for Jennifer Connelly's character who I just have in my notes like the wife or knows what I'm not even sure she has a name they sure give her a name, has a name but, but I mean I don't in the bible she doesn't have a name I don't think the wives ever have like none of the wives in the story the have do. a name some of the wives really? in the old testament sure no right. I mean in the Noah story oh, well, I don't I, I, I don't believe re- that any of them have a name I so. didn't go back to the source material in this case so uh, I, I mean was... again there's not much source material right. you know this is right. this is a pretty sketched out story right. for something that is so like large scale right but in this case you have you know Noah threatening to kill his own grandchild at yes. one point and 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 just generally doing these extreme things like having these mad visions and we have to leave our home and go to visit my grandfather and then we have to build this ark and here come the rock creatures and and through it all you know Jennifer Connelly's character just is like this kind of steadfast okay Noah whatever you say and and again this is getting back to the way that that material was written and it's sort of I mean, it's part of that that core text so I'm not really, you know, faulting it in that sense, but it's just she's she's she she has screen time, but she doesn't really do much. She just kind of stands there. And it when you have such a great actress in that part, too, you kept you keep waiting. And she finally gets one scene towards the end where she stands up to him and she gets, you know, she got the big Oscar bait kind of scene where she cries and, you know, I will not allow it, that kind of thing. And she's good in that scene. But it to me, it felt like a little too little too late, really. And. You know, some of the sons, Noah's sons, Logan Lerman, you mentioned, I felt like he was a little deficient for his part. I, I, I feel like this, the character was deficient, you maybe, know, in maybe a lot that of... Too. I, I, but I feel like that part can be kind of interesting. His character is, the, it, you know, he's basically jonesing for a lady, you know, like my br- his brother has a girlfriend, right? Right. And he's like, okay, Noah, you know, like what's... what's... But, and not, but also not even just that to be like, well, th- this may be it. Like I may be facing the rest of my life alone yeah right like literally humanity is going to be extinguished right where is and he's like where where's my wife yeah like, what am i and he and he you know and then he eventually finds someone that he likes and i thought all that stuff is potentially interesting and then the choice that noah makes in one key moment involving that potential spouse all interesting stuff but i again i just didn't really you, you, for the character who's sort of the most racked with doubt and guilt and makes kind of the biggest switch from one side of the fence to the other in terms of where he where he belongs in this whole battle between Noah and his family and Tubal Cain and and the the evil you know the evil humanity I just didn't feel like Logan Lerman really brought much weight of like despair and anguish and and to that character I, I you know I I haven't really had a strong feeling about him in anything really that I've seen him in, but I, in this case, I thought he was a little underwhelming. I liked him in Perks of Being a Wallflower a lot. In this, I thought, I mean, I, I think, I, I don't know if I, I felt like it was he was deficient or if it was just that that they couldn't figure out a way to write that character in a way that made total sense, uh, particularly yeah. at the end where you're like, where are you going? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, but again, that's another thing that's weird about these movies is it's, 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 or about these stories, I should say, is that, you know, like 
where did all these people come from? I know, you I know. know. And when it, you start asking actual questions like that, you don't. You get you go down a rabbit hole that you don't right you want to go to. Right. Down, I will. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things we haven't mentioned that I I do want to mention that I that stood out to me. One is that sequence, which I think they put online as the pr- part of the promotion of the movie. That's Noah telling like the story of creation. Yeah. And it is this sequence of mostly like not still frames, but quick cuts of different things that you're watching like basically it merges the story of biblical creation with visuals that suggest evolution and sort of a scientific theory of the origins of man and of the earth and the way that it fuses and tries to create a space where both like the religious and the scientific beliefs of the world can coexist i I found incredibly beautiful and powerful and i think that that sequence is stunning i think it's one of the best sequences of the year it's certainly the, the best part of this movie and it's I think it's stuff like that where you see what Aronofsky wanted to do in this movie, which was to take this story and find a modern relevance, but also in some ways stay truthful to the spirit of what it was saying, which was to these ancient stories were really, you know, fables and, and moral tales and all that sort of thing. And that sequence, I think, specifically really hits all that stuff home. And that's the sequence where you're watching and you lean forward in your chair because you're like, this is incredible. This is great filmmaking this is darren aronofsky this is the guy i love and you kind of wish some of the rest of the movie had that same energy and spirit yeah and i i think that even the opening sequence which is kind of storybook-esque in how it shows like uh and and they run through some of those Im- these images again yes. of like the the tr- um uh, tree like of the, life, the tree the, of life and the fruit and then cain and abel and like yes and all of these things just like very efficiently through these very kind of um, evocative images mm-hmm. and i i feel like that's something that he does really well and i do think also that the whole setting of it the kind of otherness of this yeah. world that it's in where it's the light is different and uh, you know, just the way the wilderness looks. He shot a lot of this in Iceland and it looks very otherworldly. Yeah. I, I think there is something to that that I think is very, is very unusual. Yeah. That idea that, you know, the earth is just one continuum and like that there's this, this story that has like a beginning and now we're here where we are now and it just progresses that the movie almost suggests that perhaps there have been like lots of civilizations that have come and gone and been wiped off the face of the earth and I like that about it. I also like just the sort of feel, like you said, of the world. It almost feels like a post-apocalyptic movie. Yeah. And I like the idea of, of kind of contrasting the beginning of everything with this place that feels like it's post-apocalyptic. You know, the, the last couple of scenes, they almost look like they shot them on the Planet of the Apes. It has, it, for all I know, I don't know where they shot those scenes. I mean, they look just like the beach from Planet of the Apes. And they have that kind of end-of-the-world, otherworldly feel and I thought that stuff was really great. I thought that was really evocative and beautiful. So, again, that was also stuff I liked. Now now that I've said some things I like, I will say the big battle scene that you mentioned, Lord of the Rings, that like, feels straight out of like Lord of the Rings it, or with like the Watchers. Any other, yes, like, the big uh, rock guys. There's so many other, also, I think, like, it's like generic fantasy battle number one. Yeah. It feels like some, it's probably a setting on a computer somewhere. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and this whole, and the whole, like, sort of civilization of, I don't even know what they're called, just the evil humans, the industrial society led yeah. by Tubal Cain, just that, I mean, I guess his character, played by Ray Winstone, he gets a little bit of, of a, of a of of complication you know he has a couple of scenes where he's talking to logan lerman's character where you at least feel you don't really side with him but he is able to sort of be seductive in a way that i like the way that he's talking about how 
like I'm I'm for humanity. I want humanity to survive, which yeah. is something that's a that's an argument that I think most people would say. Okay, yeah, we want. Yeah, you know, like I mean, I think at one point pro people. He literally says, like, you know, your father would let children die and save the animals. Right, and you kind which of read. He, is, he literally he does. Yes, that is that is kind of truthful in the story. So I liked that character to an extent, and I liked that scene. But does anyone else in that society have like any even a sense of a character, uh, any sort of beyond just being like? evil and hedonistic and i guess other than the woman that logan lerman's character meets well i mean obviously in one scene but there must be plenty of people who are innocent right right i mean but then that just i think it's something that the movie does i think to its credit it, it commits to but it's also something that's very difficult to reckon with which is that this is an actual old testament god right that is right. someone who it's a god who is like he's wrath this isn't working out for me i'm gonna wipe out humanity and like the the movie shows you know, like them in the boat in the in the ark, and like people screaming outside. Yeah, that's a that's and a and it's scene a powerful too. image, and I think it, there's it's true. Like that's that's the story, right? That is what happens in the story. But I think it also makes it kind of it's a difficult story to reckon with when yeah. you're like obviously there are a lot of innocents and victimized people who died as well, right? And they show them like the movie shows them, and and doesn't really then know how to how to even that out yeah it shows them as little as possible i would say <laughs> it, it, it might have been more interesting it might have been harder to get that idea over or to to uh if they had shown them a little bit more which i guess is what i wanted so yeah i mean i can see why the movie got um you know i would say it mostly it got mixed to positive reviews i can see you know i don't think it's a great film i don't think it's certainly not one of aronofsky's better films but it has some really powerful stuff in it that sequence that you know, creation sequence is really incredible. That's certainly one that's going to, you know, people are going to remember anytime they talk about Aronofsky's work. And we haven't really mentioned Russell Crowe, who I think is very good in the he movie. He is very good. You know, he's, he hasn't... Grumpy is a good fit for him, and he's he's surly and grumpy in this a lot. And he <laughs> goes through this, like, all these, you know, these different phases where his, you know, his character is kind of, looks a little more hippie-ish in the beginning, and then he shaves his head, and he kind of... Looks very stern. Yeah, and like, it becomes almost like this militant ecological figure where you yeah. know like i just felt like the, the the small transformation he goes under in the movie i found pretty compelling and and he really brings across the the sort of the intensity of the character the the fact that he's willing to go to these extremes but is also haunted by the things he's doing i think all that is in there but again i just wish that the other supporting characters were sort of up to that same level i know it's called noah i know it's about noah but I, I think the whole the whole uh, what's what's a watery expression I'm looking for that would be very appropriate here the rising tide raises all the boats or whatever that sure more more good performances would have elevated the whole movie more more richly written characters would have elevated the whole movie yeah and you know I think that I I think it was either Aronofsky or Russell Crowe who mentioned that he saw Noah as having like survivor's guilt which I think is an interesting way to put it and really speaks to how traumatized Noah seems by this decision that he has to make. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Russell Crowe gets that across very well. He looks like horribly tortured towards the end, but also like someone who feels like he has to do what he has decided he has to do. But yeah, I, you know, in the end, this is, this becomes a story that puts that entire choice on one person. And I think that when you're actually seeing other people on screen, you do kind of it feels frustrating to be like you are also part of this don't you feel like you need to fight right <laughs> don't you don't you want to be able to weigh in 
Um, but yeah, I, I feel like it's, I, I admire Aronofsky for his ambition a lot. And I think that there's, it's clear when you watch this movie that he has a lot invested in this story. It's not necessarily one that I would say is a natural fit for on screen as much as it lends itself to a few really stunning scenes. Um, we didn't even talk about the arc and like they put all the animals to sleep with incense and they're like, that's the part you chose to explain <laughs> and not how they all fit in there. What, like how do they survive for this long? Like how many, many other things. It's yeah. a weird detail. I think they just threw it in. So they didn't have to show anything with the animals at all, which is really funny. Cause he, you know, does Noah's Ark and he clearly has zero interest whatsoever <laughs> in any of the, you know, the whole, the animals, the two by two, all that jazz, nothing. Yeah. Cuts all that out. Yeah. Well, what can you do? What can you do? Well, that is Noah, and it is currently available for rent. Well, let's move on to uh, Behind the Eight Ball. This is the segment where we wrap up the show with some recommendations. Three new releases on streaming. Two listener recommendations that you guys send to us at SVU at FilmSpottingSVU.com. And one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists. I think I'm going first, right, yeah. Allison? Yeah. I, I, are you ready? You just did the yes. intro for me. Yes, I'm ready. All right. Well, three new releases. All right. Let's start with maybe the most cruelly overlooked movie at last year's Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Makeup, but somehow it did not win despite the greatest prosthetic effects of the year. It's Jackass Presents Bad <laughs> Grandpa, the spinoff film about Johnny Knoxville's vulgar senior citizen Irving Zisman on a road trip with his uh, equally vulgar grandson, maybe even more vulgar grandson, I should say. Along the way, they perform these hidden camera pranks on real people that are among the most hilarious and reckless stuff that the franchise has ever done. I wasn't a huge fan of the attempts to shoehorn sentimentality into this, this mm-hmm. storyline, uh, and I definitely did miss some of the other Jackass cast members, Steve O, Wherefore Art Thou, uh, but this is still <laughs> a very funny movie. And it really was robbed at the Oscars. I'm not joking about that. This movie should have won the Academy Award for Best Makeup. And I should be able to say Academy Award winner, Jackass Presents Bad Grandpa. But regardless, either way, you can watch it now on Netflix. All right, next up is a movie available on Hulu+. Plus. It features the head explosion that was heard around the world. It's David Cronenberg's Scanners, his breakthrough film about the world of these quote-unquote scanners, these people who have telepathic and telekinetic powers. Um, the head explosion is a very famous scene that comes when one scanner unwittingly scans another. That's the great Michael Ironside. And it's loaded with nightmarish imagery and lots of weird ideas. Uh, it's really one of the signature 1980s science fiction movies. And if you're in the mood for more Cronenbergian insanity, you can also watch his evil kitty film, The Brood. Both of those movies are new on Hulu Plus thanks to the Criterion Collection, Scanners and the Brood. And finally, available on Netflix is Hoop Dreams, which is now 20 years old, which is mind-blowing in and of itself. One of the great documentaries of all time from director Steve James, originally created as a... Well, it was conceived as a 30-minute short film for public television about one... A playground basketball court in Chicago and the people who played there, but eventually expanded to this massive three-hour epic, uh, basically about you know African American life in in the United States. And it follows these two kids, Arthur Ag and William Gates, these prodigies, these basketball prodigies, as they're going through high school. Follows their entire careers as they are trying to 
use their skills to become, you know, get college educations and then ultimately go to the NBA and it sees what happens to these guys along the way. It is an incredible film, really one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. If you haven't ever seen it, Hoop Dreams, it's available now on Netflix. All right, two listener recommendations. All right, our first listener recommendation comes from Lauren in Eatontown, New Jersey. She writes, hey, Matt Nelson, I wanted to tell you about a great doc on Netflix called I Know That Voice. I heard about this documentary over two years ago when voice actors John DiMaggio and Billy West were on the Nerdist podcast, and it's finally come to streaming. DiMaggio, probably best known for providing the voices of Bender on Futurama and Jake the Dog on Adventure Time, produced the film as a way of showcasing the talent and passion he and his fellow actors have for voiceover work. No matter what generation you belong to, we've all grown up loving one cartoon or another, and most people go through their whole lives adoring these characters without knowing who actually makes them come to life. With the popularity of cons and podcasts, nerds like me have gotten to know some of these talented actors' faces and resumes, but they're still widely unknown to the general public. I Know That Voice is a really entertaining and enlightening inside look at just how much thought, work, and talent goes into voiceovers. Thanks for all the hard work putting together the show. I look forward to every episode. That's from Lauren in Eatontown, New Jersey, and her recommendation, which is on Netflix, is called I Know That Voice. And I'm, I'm going to check that one out. I've never seen that movie but I love voice artists, vo- voice talents, voice actors, as evidenced by the fact that I n- make terrible, stupid voices on the show. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. So that's definitely a recommendation I'm going to be adding to my my list uh, immediately after this, this show is over. Our next recommendation is from listener Patrick F. And Patrick likes, I would like to recommend the newly rediscovered Lost Orson Welles silent film, Too Much Johnson, (laughs) which is streaming. Sorry, that was my tittering, not not Patrick's, which is streaming for free on the National Film Preservation Society's website, which you can get at filmpreservation.org. Yes, I know this title sounds like a Simpsons gag, but there really is a newly rediscovered Lost Orson Welles silent film called Too Much Johnson. (laughs) The film was supposed to be part of a groundbreaking Mercury Theater multimedia production of the play of the same name. But after the stage segment of the play premiered to dismal reviews, the film was thought to have been abandoned. While the film is far from finished, it shows early flashes of the genius you would see in Citizen Kane. Whereas Kane is still seen as a true original, too much Johnson wears its influences on its sleeve uh, and seems to borrow liberally from Jean Jean Vigo, Abel Gantz, Eisenstein, and Harold Lloyd. Uh, The National Film Preservation Society is streaming two versions of the film, a 70-minute assembly cut of the footage found, and a much shorter 30-minute cut which tries to painstakingly approximate Wells's intentions. Both are fascinating looks into the filmmaker that would become Orson Welles and a great comic showcase for Citizen Kane co-star Joseph Cotton. So that's too much, Johnson. No, no tittering from uh, Allison, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and that is streaming on the National Film Preservation Society website, filmpreservation.org. All right, and one from your Netflix My List. Uh, you gave me number 101, and this time that is the movie Magic Trip, which I believe is by Alex Gibney, a filmmaker oh. who has made so many movies I can't keep up, and this one wound up on my Netflix queue. The, the description of it from Netflix is filmmakers recreate author Ken Kesey's infamous 1964 road trip to New York's Tomorrowland and what a long, strange trip it was. And... Uh, I guess it's a documentary that kind of recreates that trip, and uh, I don't know. I, I generally like Alex Gibney's movies. That's why it's on my, my list, but this one did not get great reviews no. and kind of came and went very quickly, which is why it's sort of 
kind of far down on my my list. Yeah, I feel like I might have even seen this, but I'm not entirely sure. Not a good sign. Um, but I, I think from what I remember, it's them. Uh, it's footage from from the actual trip and that they shot. Includes their whole movie footage. And yeah, and they they look for meaning and cool stuff to happen, but most of the time it doesn't actually happen, which is pretty funny to watch for a while. But okay. yes. All right, so Allison, are you ready for your countdown? I am. All right, let's start with three new releases. Okay, first up, new to Netflix is The Double. This is the second film from comedian and filmmaker Richard Ayoade, uh, who is British, who made his directorial debut a few years ago with the well-received Submarine, uh, and this has been even more like more critically acclaimed. Uh, Ayoade is... Uh, among other things, was the star of the IT crowd uh, and the co-creator of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which I think was a listener recommendation a while ago here. And this film is a really dark, surreal comedy that I would say combines Brazil, uh, Barton Fink, and Eraserhead in in terms of its sensibility. It is actually based on a Dostoevsky short story or novella. It stars Jesse Eisenberg as a man working in this just kind of desolate looking maybe slightly soviet era looking uh company and one day and pining for uh this girl who works there in the copy room played by mia vasakovska and one day a uh he's joined by a new coworker who looks exactly like him but is outgoing where he is not and is gets all of the attention and is kind of fearless where he is often ignored and overlooked. Um, so it's a really great film. It's one I liked a lot, and I, it didn't get a ton of attention when it came out, and uh, it's really worth checking out now that it's on Netflix. I, I, I was a big fan. So that's The Double. It is on Netflix. New to Hulu Plus is Saturday Night. This is James Franco's 2010 behind-the-scenes documentary about Saturday Night Live, which in typical James Franco filmmaker fashion began as a student short. Because, you know, why not have that be the, the film that you're just fooling around with? And Franco obviously gets unprecedented access because unlike most documentarians, he's hosted SNL twice. Um, this was not available for a long time. The, the film premiered at South by Southwest in 2010, but because of clearance issues, because he never really uh, looked into getting all of the rights cleared beyond getting permission to shoot it. Uh, that's why it was not available for a long time. Now finally is if you have Hulu Plus and if you're an SNL fan, definitely worth a look. And finally, new on Amazon Prime Instant Video is Transparent, episodes 1 through 10. Um, this is actually the third Amazon original series, and I think it's their first great one. It's certainly the first one that is, you know, worth, I don't know if it's worth uh, chipping in for an Amazon Prime account, but it's it's really worth looking up. It's I've only, I've watched maybe half of it so far, and it's been really impressive. Um, it's a 10-episode, half-hour dramedy. The whole season's up in full. It's created by Jill Soloway of Afternoon Delight, a recent movie. She also worked on Six Feet Under and some other great TV shows for a while. Stars Jeffrey Tambor as the father of this uh, Los Angeles Jewish family of adult children who have all grown up to be slightly awful in, in lovable ways. And it's about how he is going through this major change in his life and is trying to talk to his family about it, but they are all 
um, including one character played by Gabby Hoffman and another played by Jay Duplass, Mark Duplass's brother, who has never really acted regularly before, um, all caught up in their own incredible problems. Um, and it's funny and warm and it's very unlike like TV in general right now. It feels very new, which, uh, which is great. So I would definitely recommend that as well. Transparent is currently on Amazon Prime Instant Video. All right. And what about two listener recommendations? Well, first up, we have a listener recommendation from Jonathan, who writes, I suggest the Harmontown documentary, which goes on demand on October 3rd. Uh, seems like it's pretty interesting with multiple storylines going through the movie. Part of the movie is about Harmon adjusting to being fired from Community. Another part is about sp- fan Spencer's growth through the tour. And another part is about the specific breed of fan and person who is attracted to Harmon's show and podcast. It's out on iTunes, Amazon, and through Harmontown.com on uh, October 3rd. And that's one I'm definitely interested in um, as a fan of Harmon's and also someone who always wants to cover my eyes when he overshares or says something that he really shouldn't on one of the various uh, social media sources that he partakes in. Mm. And then we have another recommendation from Daryl from Brighton, who was inspired to write in after I talked about Christian Petzold's movie Phoenix, which was one of my favorites at the Toronto Film Festival. And he was reminded, I had said it was a World War II drama with a touch of the movie Vertigo to it. And this had reminded him of another older film he'd seen recently. Um, and when he said, uh, it was amazing just how similar these films were sounding. And he writes, so much so that although I cannot find any hard evidence yet, I'm convinced that Phoenix is a remake of the film I'm thinking about. I mean, even the titles are connected. So my streaming suggestion, he writes, is Return from the Ashes, the 1965 film directed by J. Lee Thompson and starring late, great Maximilian Schell, which is available to rent via, uh, to rent via Amazon. The plot description on Amazon is a chess champion sees his wife dragged off to apparent death in Dachau. After the war, he remarries. Then his former wife reappears. His solution? Kill both of them. Uh, this is a film that I found out about via a poll of underrated films and was described as the best Hitchcock, uh, best film Hitchcock never directed. I can certainly recommend it myself, and I think the plot similarities between it and the upcoming Phoenix are uncanny. Um, so... I cannot attest to whether or not this the how the films are related since I have not seen it yet, but they definitely seem like they are at least cousins. Um, that is ri- a return from the ashes, which is currently available on Amazon. Okay, and one random film from your my list. Well, you gave me number forty-five, which is Fearless, the two thousand six movie uh, Jet Li proclaimed would be his last martial arts <laughs> epic. Ah! In which he stars as Huo Yang, uh, Yuan Jia, who is, it's basically, uh, as far as the person who just really recommended it to me, who's like, it's like this great nationalist exercise of gently beating up various white people and then eventually a Japanese fighter. I'm on board. <laughs> and so based on this, this round of fights that was happening, um, like very highly publicized fights where he showed off, this real character showed off the, you know, the his prowess in Chinese martial arts against all of these foreign challengers. So I was like, who wouldn't want to see that? That sounds good. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So that's Fearless, uh, which is number 45 on my Netflix queue. It'll get there eventually. All right. Let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. We have three excellent picks. You've heard all of them before because they were just all recommended by one or the other of us in the previous segment. And we're looking forward to exploring one of these three movies in a bit more detail on our next episode. Uh, first up is one of my recommendations. I have seen it. Allison, you haven't seen it yet, I believe. 
It is uh, Bad Grandpa, streaming on Netflix. I have not seen it yet. Have not seen it. Are you a fan of Jackass in general? I am. I will miss Steve-O, though. He has that voice that sounds like he's been smoking 18 packs of cigarettes a day <laughs> since he was born. He does. I know. I'm looking forward to the next, you know, full Jackass movie to seeing see just how horrible Steve-O looks and sounds <laughs> in that one. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, uh, I'm a big Jackass fan. I've seen all the movies, all the TV shows. Uh, we could do a Jackass podcast, I suppose, <laughs> or we could do a podcast on pranks or stunts, movies with great stunt work or stunts or, or hidden cameras. Or hidden camera, yeah. yeah there's a lot of, yeah, there there's are a definitely lot there. some good options that for themes there. And the film itself is a lot of fun. And uh, I'd be interested to hear what Allison thinks of that one. So that's option number one. Jackass presents Bad Grandpa, streaming on Netflix. All right. Uh, option number two is Transparent, which is the Amazon series that I recommended. I am not fully, I'm only halfway through this series right now, but I think that it's both really good and also offers so many things to talk about. And I think, you know, we from time to time talk about TV series on here, particularly ones that have a film connection. And this one absolutely does um you know not just jill soloway but it's got uh, a lot of people that i think we've gotten more used to seeing on film uh venturing into television and doing some really great work in it uh it's also just a really sensitive but also sometimes very sharp-edged portrait of a family and uh and of, of like a family where everyone is is supposedly a grown-up uh, and i think that we can probably jump off a lot of title or a lot of ideas from there including even just about Los Angeles, since this is definitely a show that's very set in Los Angeles. So that's Transparent. It's available on Amazon Prime Instant Video. All right. And our last pick, a little little older title. We picked one vintage movie from amongst the choices, and that is Scanners, which is, of course, from David Cronenberg. It's streaming now on Hulu Plus, as we mentioned before, from the Criterion Collection. Had you seen Scanners? You said you have, right? Yes, but a long time ago. And uh, mostly I just remember it being incredibly disturbing. Right. Yeah, and I've only seen it once or twice, maybe. And it's been a while since I've seen it as well. David Cronenberg has a new movie that's coming out, Maps right? to the Stars. Maps to the Stars, I think, is playing or just played at the New York Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And it just played at a bunch of other festivals, so... Uh, certainly we could do it. Have we done a Cronenberg podcast before? I don't think we have, but honestly, I mean, I think we would need to do a head exploding podcast because... There's definitely some options to choose from. We <laughs> yes. could do a whole podcast on head explosions. <laughs> it would be the most horrifying thing we've ever done, but... <laughs> but worth are, it, I think. There are a lot of options out there. But yes. yeah, David Cronenberg, scanning, telepathy, telekinesis, exploding heads, throbbing veins, a lot of like vein throbbing. If you don't like veins throbbing out of people's skulls, do not watch this movie. It's creepy. It's weird. It's, it's, yeah. it's amazing. It's awesome. With like, a, like body horror weakness. It's like these movies. <laughs> hey, this was one of your, <laughs> that know, was one of your choices. I know, I know. You chose not to veto and it. I would so. absolutely be happy to talk about so it. So if you want to make Allison completely physically ill, that's option three, Scanners on Hulu+. Plus. All right. Well, which of these choices should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or even easier, you could enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, October 6th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on, on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film or TV show. And then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, October 14th. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. 
The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie or TV review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. And don't forget to keep emailing us your listener recommendations to share on that last segment of the show. The email address one more time, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. For Film Spotting SVU, I am Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>